Are you a perfectionist? A perfectionist. What is a perfectionist? Well, the name gives it away. It's someone who pursues perfection. I looked, found this online. I obviously have no ability to verify it myself, but I heard, I read, that about 30% of the population would qualify as perfectionists. About 30% of people are perfectionists. Now, I very much have perfectionist tendencies. Um, it is connected in uh, uh, some way to just, I'm, I'm somewhat compulsive. It just is part of, of my family trait. Uh, going back many years, um, if you wanted to know a kind of compulsiveness, you should have met Roger Magnuson. Uh, well, most of you did, uh, actually. But uh, my dad uh, had some very, very strong perfectionist tendencies. Well, I found that despite 30% of people who are in the ordinary population, um, I found that approaching 90% um, were of what would be called extraordinarily gifted people are perfectionists. It's kind of a, a, a compulsion that drives some of these individuals. And of those, another 30% of those extraordinarily gifted ones are what would be qualified as neurotic perfectionists the kind that just utterly controls your life. In fact, I saw one uh, 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 article on this by a man whose the title was quite arresting. It was, um, Perfectionism is a Mental Illness and It's Ruining My Life. Yikes. Um, I hope you're not that kind of perfectionist because that kind of perfectionist is not healthy. But I, I start there because the passage that we're dealing with tonight is dealing with holiness, as we have been talking about already for the last several weeks. What is biblical holiness? Why are we commanded to pursue it? And how are we to pursue it? And we see here in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, that scripture says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness. Are you a perfectionist when it comes to holiness? Now, we should immediately pause here for a moment to recognize a couple things. One is that that word perfecting, perfecting, perfecting holiness does not suggest that you are um, or will be in this life perfect, perfectly holy. We know even from Romans 7 and other places that the idea of a kind of sinless perfection in this life is not taught in Scripture. The perfecting there has the idea of completing, being brought to full maturity, to full bloom, a fully grown, a fully completed kind of holiness. But at the same time, we also shouldn't miss that you are perfectly holy by the insertion of the Holy Spirit into you. Your character, your nature, when God moved in, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. When you were joined to the Lord in that relationship, your nature became perfectly holy in the sense that you now have the very life of Jesus Christ in you. Christ in you, Scripture says, the hope of glory. You are holy in your 
inner spirit, if you will, by virtue of your being joined to Christ. And as we've been focusing on already over these several weeks, you are to be holy because you are holy. You have been set apart and sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, God's expectation of you is to perfect that holiness, to complete that holiness, to bring it to its full maturity. And in fact, as we saw last week, he has committed himself to your holiness through the use of discipline, through the use of chastening. And now he calls you to pursue peace and holiness, as Hebrews 12 says, without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, are you a perfectionist when it comes to holiness? Do you intend to perfect holiness, as he says here, in the fear of God? What does that entail? Notice what he says here. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And earlier in the passage that James read for us this evening, we see another command. Verse 17 of chapter 6. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. I take these two commands as being very similar. Come out from among them and be separate and touch no unclean thing. And then, only a couple verses later, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. If we're going to understand what it is to perfect holiness, to bring it to its full completion, we have to understand what it means to separate. To come out from among them and be separate and touch no unclean thing. The title of the message tonight is simply Perfecting Holiness. Perfecting Holiness. And this is a message for everyone here who is a born-again child of God, who has embraced the promises of God by faith in Christ, no matter how old or how young you are. You are called to perfect holiness, to bring it to completion. And therefore, as I ask again, and I will tonight, are you a perfectionist when it comes to your holiness? The first thing that we're going to look at tonight is what I'm going to call the mission. The mission that is presented here for us in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice what he is describing as our mission is to cleanse ourselves. Now stop there for just a moment. If you have been well trained and well taught in the gospel, which I trust you have, you know that you don't cleanse yourself in a particular kind of way. You cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot bring about the kind of forgiveness of sin and cleansing of sin that only the perfect and and spotless Lamb of God can accomplish for you. As we understand and as I try to say to you every time we come to the Lord's Supper, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no ability that you and I have to cleanse ourselves in that kind of dealing with sin. So what does he mean then when he suggests that we are to cleanse ourselves? The cleansing of ourselves here is a kind of pursuit that all of us are called to. It's the same kind 
of pursuit that we're called to when he says, be holy. Be holy for I am holy. Do you remember what we talked at the very beginning of this study? We understood that holiness was that by which, fundamentally speaking, we obey God. It's connected centrally to our obedience. It is our set-apartness to God to take the character, the divine nature that has been implanted in us, and to bring it out to every area. We talked about the person who is very gifted at a musical instrument, and they just have a natural aptitude toward it, a natural desire, and a drive toward it. If you will, that's their nature. Their nature is to be good at an instrument. That does not mean they do not have to work and do those same scales that you and I had to do when we were learning piano, and those arpeggios up and down the keys. They had to master their left hand. They had to master their right hand. They had to put them both together. They had to practice with a metronome slowly and slowly and slowly until they increased the tempo um, gradually and gradually. What is it? It's the same thing. There's a kind of divine cleansing that only God can provide. And then there is a call for that cleansing, for that divine nature to be seen practically in every area of our life. He says, cleanse yourselves. From what? From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice filthiness here. It's something that defiles. He's saying there are particular things in your life that will defile you. Now, who's he talking to here? Unbelievers? No. He's just said, having therefore these promises, who? Dearly beloved. He's talking to Christians. So you, Christian, can defile yourself. You can defile yourself in two ways, he says here. You can defile yourself in the flesh, and you can defile yourself with the Spirit. Now let's break these two apart because every word of God is inspired and God-breathed. So what kind of filthiness of the flesh might he be talking about? Well, the filthiness of the flesh would be the filthiness of the things that you do with your body. Now what was a particular kind of sin with the Corinthians? Paul, this is his second letter that he wrote to them. He also wrote a first letter to them. And maybe you recall in 1 Corinthians 6, he says in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ, your bodies, your flesh. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot, a prostitute? God forbid. Friends, there was a prostitution problem. There was a prostitution problem in Corinth. Now, as, as repulsive and repugnant as that sounds rightly to us, We should not pretend that just because we are in a church that stands or attempts to stand on the word of God and tends to teach it and and tries to hold to, to appropriate standards biblically that we are simply put apart from sexual sin. We should not be blind to the fact that adultery takes root in churches like these, that fornication takes root in churches like these that all kinds of sexual sin takes place in churches, even among those who are professing the name of Christ. There are sins of the flesh, and they do not need only to be sexual sins. The other sins of the flesh that we could easily identify with, gluttony. Other kinds of sins, you could say theft. You could say all kinds of sins of the flesh that are defiling to us, that are impure. Listen to what just generally Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 in that same passage. 
He says, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. If we think about what the temple was of God in the Old Testament, it was the place where he dwelt where God resided, where the people of Israel through the high priest literally communed with God, where the sacrifices were made that were for the cleansing uh, or at least depicting the cleansing of their sin. And this temple, he says, is you. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And therefore, what does he say? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let everything you do with these hands and these feet, let every word that rolls off this tongue, let it glorify God. Another way to say it is cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 6, therefore glorify God in your body and in what? In your spirit. He says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God, in what way would we describe the filthiness of the Spirit? I wonder. In fact, I think it's probably true that the sins, the filthiness of your spirit is more insidious and more dangerous than the sins of your flesh because we can see, obviously, the sins of our flesh. Do you know what we can't so, see so easily? Our pride. Oh, that's not pride. That's not a problem. No, I'm not too proud to go see a council. No, I'm not too proud to go and humble. Oh, no, I, that's not pride. It's blinding. What about bitterness? No, I'm not bitter. You just don't understand how badly I was hurt. No, I'm not bitter. I'm just protecting myself. No, I'm not bitter. I'm just, I'm just working through it. We're blinded. We're blinded so easily to the sins of the Spirit. But one in particular, I think, would have jumped out at the Apostle Paul relating to the Corinthian people. It was a particular filthiness of idolatry. Of idolatry. The Bible identifies idolatry as being that which distracts, which turns the affections of our heart, which turns our loyalty away from the only true God, as the people of Israel over and over and over and over fell into in the Old Testament. What kind of idolatry? Well, 1 John 5, the very last verse of the book of 1 John, says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And while we today, I suspect none of you, are falling down and worshiping any statues in your living room, as one writer has said, our heart is an idol factory. Our heart churns out idols over and over and over again that, is, that are continually trying to distract our affections from God, our loyalty from God, competing with our submission to God. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, anything that defiles in the bodily acts that we perform, and in the spirit, in our inward realm. That's the mission. You cannot perfect holiness unless you have a mission to cleanse yourself from the filthiness, what defiles you, of the flesh, that is your body, and of the spirit. Notice secondly here what I'm going to call the means. 
The means. The mission is to cleanse ourselves. The means. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 6. Go back only two verses. These passages are connected. Frankly, if I were doing it, there wouldn't have been a chapter divide here. Because chapter 7 and verse 1 says, having therefore these promises. It just simply is a continuation. It's the end of the thought at here in chapter 6. And so notice here in verse 17, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now if we're going to understand what he's saying there, we have to go back even more. Go back to verse 14, where James began for us. Let's start there. Paul's going to give a command. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Now let me stop just there for one moment. When you read those verses... What in particular do you identify with Paul's statement to say, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Marriage. That was the, well, that was the first thing I heard. Marriage. Yes. How many of you would say, yep, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that passage. It's probably, I see a number of hands going up. Do you know there's actually nothing in this passage that suggests contextually Paul's talking about marriage? Do I think this passage applies to marriage? Yes. Are there other passages saying don't marry unbelievers? Yes. Is that a biblical truth? Yes. But in fact, this actually doesn't specifically talk about unbelievers. Uh, excuse me, about marriage with unbelievers. So what is, what is Paul trying to say when he says to the Corinthians and to us, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he says, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And then he says, beyond it, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Let's try to answer that question. Go back to verse 14 for just a moment, will you? I want us just to look at something from these verses that I think will help us put them in context and understand what Paul's saying. He starts with a command, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And now he's going to go into a variety of contrasts. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Now the first thing is there, notice the striking contrast. He's doing complete opposites. Righteousness, what is right before God. Unrighteousness, what is wrong before God. Notice the next striking contrast. Light and darkness. You can't have a more striking contrast than that because darkness is the absence of light. And the moment light enters, there is no darkness. It is as separate as you can possibly be. There is no communion between light and darkness. Notice then what comes next in verse 15. Christ and Belial. You say, what on earth is Belial? You see it in the Old Testament. It became synonymous with the devil. It was a, a word that just meant worthless empty. And so it became applied to the devil. He's saying, what conquered, what harmony does Christ have with the devil? You can't have a more striking contrast. Notice then what he says. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, infidel really just means an unbeliever. 
you got a believer on the one hand, and you have an unbeliever. You have a believer who is a part of the kingdom of God with eternal life assured in a new heaven and a new earth. You have an unbeliever who is in the kingdom of Satan and whose end is destruction in the lake of fire. What possible more contrast could you have? Notice then what he says in verse 16. What agreement at the temple of God with idols? The temple of God where God dwells and idols which are nothing and symbolize the emptiness of the world. Now, what's my point here? My point is simply this. Paul is tapping in to what God always does throughout the entire Bible. He contrasts light and darkness. In the beginning, there was darkness, and he called light out of darkness. This is what God does. We've been reading in the book of Exodus together as we've been working through our Bible readings together, and another passage jumped out at me. Do you remember when God was placing these plagues on the Egyptians? Do you know who wasn't affected by the plagues? His people. And do you know what he said in Exodus chapter 7 when he talks about the firstborn dying in the land of Egypt? Listen to what he says. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And God always does that. He always puts a difference between his people and the devil's people. In this striking contrast between light and darkness, God is a God of clear contrast, of black and white differences. This is how he operates. You remember some of those passages that maybe it caused you to to scratch your head in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. I think of Leviticus 19. Ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender or propagate with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. See, what on earth is he talking about? Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come on thee. You can't have a a, a garment that's mixed. You say, does this make any sense? Yes, it is when you know who God is. When you know the message that God is sending to his people across all of all ages. I am a God of black and white contrasts. Listen to Deuteronomy 22. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds. He says, thou shalt now plow with an ox and an ass together. We'll get to that. Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts as of woolen and linen together. Again, what is God doing here? Is he telling you, you can't wear mixed garments? I don't believe that. What he's telling us is all across the Bible, he is saying this, I'm a God who draws clear lines between my people and those who are in the kingdom of Satan. Light and darkness are complete contrasts. Here's the second thing. Beyond those striking contrasts that Paul is drawing, what else is he bringing out in these, con- in these, in these rhetorical questions? Well, notice, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What's fellowship? It's association. It's connection. It's a common cause for a common purpose. Listen to this. What communion hath light with darkness? It's another word. The same idea. A common cause and a common purpose. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Same idea. Harmony, participation, sharing, one endeavor. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Again, this kind of sharing, a participation. What is common to each one of those? Notice what he's saying. 
you have two things that are completely contrasted to one another. How can they join hands in a common cause, a common enterprise, with a common purpose? Now pause there for just a moment, and let's see if we can think about what he's saying. Do you remember anything in the Old Testament that might support this idea? We won't turn to it for time's sake, but I would just ask you to maybe write in your notes in your Bible, 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, if you look at the beginning of chapter 18 and the end of chapter 20, you'll see God's reproofs to a man named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was one of the best kings of Judah. And do you know what Jehoshaphat liked to do? Unfortunately, he liked to associate with the kings of Israel. He went out to war with a wicked king named Ahab, and he got rebuked for it. In fact, he almost died because King Ahab set him up. Do you remember what King Ahab said? King Ahab said, hey, you go out in the king garments. You go be the obvious one. I'll just kind of slide here under the radar and disguise myself. Well, God wasn't fooled. Ahab died, and Jehoshaphat lived. Jehoshaphat almost died. Jehoshaphat didn't learn his lesson. At the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat has a, has, is going to have a ship campaign, a shipping campaign with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. And again, God sends his prophet and says, why are you joining with those who hate me? He says, because you've done that, the ships are going to be broken. This picture, how can light be joining with darkness in common cause and common purpose? There's one other thing I think that we need to suggest here. What is God saying when, he's, when he is warning us against light and darkness joining in common cause and common purpose? Well, let's say what he's not talking about. He's not talking about you being a monk and going out of the world. He's not talking about you going and living in a monastery free from any secular influence in your life. He's not talking about you looking for a Christian community where it's only you and other like-minded Christians. He's not talking about you not being a member of a workforce surrounded by other non-believers. He's not talking even about you having friendships and even dinner invitations, hospitality with unbelievers. How do we know this? I want to prove this to you from from. From Paul, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Will you just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is speaking about the subject of church discipline. And he's saying there's a particular kind of separation that is done when someone who calls, who is called a brother, is living in certain unrepentant sin. He says that person needs to be excluded from the church fellowship. Let's very, be very clear about this. He's saying someone who is called a brother. He's not talking, in my view, about someone who leaves a church and says, I don't identify with Christ anymore. I'm not a believer anymore. I have no desire to be called a Christian. In my view, that type of person does not fall within 1 Corinthians 5 because Paul clearly says it's anyone who is called a brother. But notice what he says here in verse 9 of chapter 5. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. I told you not to hang out with them, not to associate with them. But notice what he says to clarify. 
yet not altogether the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He's saying, I'm not saying you can't associate with open, unrepentant sinners in the world, because otherwise you'd have to be a monk. No, he says, who am I talking about? But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous. That's who he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5. And he's clarifying for us that he is not suggesting that we have to utterly cut off individuals who are sinners from around us. In fact, go to chapter 10. Go to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says here. Look at verse 27. He's talking about this thorny question of meat offered to idols. How should a Christian handle meat offered to idols? And he says, if any of them that believe not, any unbeliever, bid you to a feast, and you'll see there that the word to a feast is in italics. It was not originally in our Greek text. It was an addition by the translators to try to bring out the context. The idea is, if anyone invites you over to dinner, and he's an unbeliever, Notice what he says. And ye, be and ye be disposed to go. You want to go. You think you should go. Notice what he says. Whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Paul doesn't say, no, turn down all kinds of socializing with unbelievers. That's not for you Christians. Come out from among them and be separate. He says, no, are you disposed to go? Okay, well then I'm going to give you some guidance for that. And if we need any other proof on that, we remember what the greatest charge that the Pharisees had against Jesus. What was the Pharisees' number one charge against Jesus? Jesus says, I came eating and drinking, and you said, what am I? A glutton, a wine-bibber, a drunkard, and a friend of publicans and sinners. Do you know what Jesus would have said? Guilty as charged. Because I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. You see, what is he saying here? The message of Scripture is this. You are not to called to go out of the world. You are called, like Jesus, to go into the world and call sinners to repentance. You are called to be light, which must go into darkness to make a difference. You are called to be salt, which must go into the meat in order to make a difference. And so therefore, in your workplace, and in your school, and in your neighborhood, your job is not an isolationist. Your job is not to withdraw. Your job is not to try to say, I'm the one who has the door locked, and the curtain's always shut. Your job is to be making a difference like Christ did. So he's not talking about you, your inability to associate or to connect or to share meals or even friendship with people in the world. What is he talking about? Notice, he says, be not unequally yoked. The picture here is of an ox and a donkey who are trying to plow a field together. And because they're not the same size, and because they have different pace of plowing, they are not able to do it together. It is going to rub, other, the yoke is going to rub in the wrong place. It's going to lead, lead to irritation. It's going to lead to frustration. There is a kind of association. There is a kind of connection, a communion, a fellowship between God's people and the people of darkness that God said it's not for you. We can say this unambiguously. There is no communion that we can have in our mission and our worship here as a church with darkness. We can't do it. 
We're not going to hold a secular concert to try to bring people in where we can preach the gospel to them. We will not make that common cause. We will not be unequally yoked. We will not be unequally yoked in terms, God willing, of our message, in terms of our mission, in terms of our methods. We will not be. But what's he saying to us beyond merely a church? Notice again the connection. It's not just these striking contrasts. It's not just these united associations, but it's a kind of moral impurity. Will you notice what he says here again in verse 17? Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate. Don't have these associations. But more than that, touch not the unclean thing. In other words, the point here is not just whether a person, a Christian, can be in a legal partnership with other people. I hope he can. Otherwise, I'm in a little bit of trouble. It's not about whether you can do uh, banking with a non-Christian bank. It's not about whether you can go over to a dinner party with this person here or there. It's this. Are your associations, are your connections, are your relationships, common cause and common purpose, connected to the moral impurity of the world? And where they are, God says unambiguously, come out from among them and be separate. You see, how would this apply to our lives? This is a place where I can't apply this to your life. The Holy Spirit has to apply this to your life. But I can tell you some things that might apply to mine. What kinds of affiliations and associations do we have in terms with the world and its entertainment? When we bring ourselves into a television show, when we allow ourselves to be sucked into the plot of a movie or a show that is defiling to the flesh and to the spirit, what, our, what those directors, what those actors, what those script writers are doing is they're trying to make it impossible for you to turn off. And so what do we do? We participate in the defilement. We say, oh, well, maybe I'm going to glance away or maybe I'm going to bleep out that part. What are we doing? We're saying, I have to get to the next season. I have to get to the next episode. I have to get to the plot point. And what are we doing? We're, in my view, being unequally yoked. We're making common cause. We're sharing of our revenue, of, of our money. What kinds of other things might we say? Where we are coming into a common cause with a common purpose, not just with unbelievers, but with the defilement of the world, with the defilement of the flesh and the spirit in a way that we say, I know it. I know it. What is God saying to us? God is saying the same thing he has said to people across all ages. Cleanse yourselves. Cleanse yourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Be a perfectionist. Pursue the kind of holiness that is completely separated from worldly lust. As John says in 1 John 2, love not the world. These are the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James chapter 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world, the association with, the unequal yoking with, the communion with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world with those unclean uh, associations and connections, with that moral impurity of the world, he says, is the enemy of God. It's pretty simple. 
It may be challenging to see in our lives, but once we see it, my challenge to you is cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself from all defilement of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. So first of all, we see a mission. Cleanse yourself from all defilement. Secondly, we see the means. If you're going to cleanse yourself from that, you have to see the defilement that is coming from around you, from your common cause and common purpose, your association, your affiliation with the impurity of the world. And God says, make a fundamental break. Make a clean break with it in your life. Come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And finally and thirdly, there's a motive here that I'd like to hold out in front of us as Scripture does. Will you look with me at verse number 1 of chapter 7? Having therefore these promises. These promises. I want us to see here. These promises. Which promises? Well, go back to verse number 16. And I want us just to count up the promises. Should we count them? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. Now let's start counting them. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. However you want to count that, I count at least five. Five promises of God to those who are committed to holiness, to being holy like he is. Now, do you notice that each one of those is connected to relationship with God? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will identify with them. Not only that, I will be a father to them. I will receive them as my own. They will be my children. Uh, we will have this close relationship of fellowship. You know, friends, what we are forfeiting when we do not pursue holiness, when we do not cleanse ourselves from defilement of the flesh and spirit, is we are missing relationship and fellowship with God. You say, is it really that big a deal? Yes. Because of what we're missing in the word of God, what we're missing in our prayer time with God, what we're missing in the worship of God, when we are yielding to defilement, we are missing out on fellowship with God. And God says, having these promises, have being motivated by what you can be having in a relationship with me, pursue, pursue the kind of separation that I desire. But there's one other thing, one other motive that he gives us. Will you see? Verse 1 of chapter 7. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, friends, this drives us really to what is the central aspect of holiness that we've been studying so far. The central aspect of holiness is not turning away and separating yourself from sin, though that is so fundamentally important. The fundamental aspect of holiness is separating yourself to God. And unless you know that your holiness is separating yourself to God, you're going to be a Pharisee. You're going to be a Pharisee. Because in the New Testament, there was no one who pursued holiness more in an external sense, in a separated sense, than Pharisees. I believe even the name Pharisee meant separated. 
The very name Pharisee was separated. That was what they were so proud of. They were separated from everything. And what were they separated from? God. They were separated from God. You see, the whole purpose of holiness, obedience toward God, turning away from these sins of the flesh and the spirit is so that you can pursue usefulness to God. You can pursue fellowship with God, communion, intimacy with God. And that's ultimately what the Pharisees missed. They didn't realize that their separation was unto themselves. Do you remember what Jesus said to them and what he criticized them with so much over and over again? He said, when you pray, you pray out on the street corners so that everyone sees you. He said, you have your reward. Your reward is in those who you are separated to. You just want the, pl the pleasure of man. When you fast, you do it so that everyone sees. When you give generously, you put a trumpet up. You love the chief places in the marketplaces. You love the chief places at feasts. You love to be seen of man. Who were they separated to? Themselves. And I just need to say this. Any pursuit of holiness that ultimately is not pursuing a separation to God is nothing more than legalism. It's Phariseeism. And it does not please God. And it will not draw you into relationship with him. What does he say? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Have any of you picked up a new workout routine? in the month of January? And if you have a New Year's resolution that says, I'm going to start working out, you know what I can tell you? Some of you may already have lost that routine. What's the hardest thing about a, a workout routine? I'll tell you what it is for me. What's my motive? What's my motive? What happens so often when I go out and try to start a new workout routine? I look in the mirror and I say, not much is changing. I look at the scale and I say, not much is changing. I say, all right, it's not working too well, and I stop. You start a diet. You say, you know what? I'm going to vacation. I need to look a lot better. I, I'm going I'm to starve myself for a month. I'm going to go down to Florida. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be great. Your doctor tells you you got to get healthy. you got a checkup coming up. You start eating right. You start cutting out carbs and cutting out sugar, and then what happens after the vacation is done? What happens when you meet your diet goal? <sighs> I got it. The point is, what's your motive for cleansing yourself? If your motive is the way that others view you, you're not separated to God and you're not holy. If your motive is to be pursuing a kind of elevation in your position at church or in the way that, that you can be useful in a particular way. You're not holy. You're not separated to God. Spouses, you know the difference. You know the difference between someone who is in a relationship with you and is pursuing moral purity so they don't get a transmitted disease or so they don't get someone pregnant who's not you and between someone whose purity is directed toward you. They are separated to you. They are devoted to you and to that connection. And that is the same thing that when God looks at us when he sees our pursuit to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, he says, is this to me? Is this about me? Is this about relationship and fellowship with me? That's holiness. Holiness. Our motive of holiness is the promises that God gives and our trust in those promises that he's going to be true to his word. 
and it is a complete set apart separation to him and for him in all that we do. Let me tonight go back to the first question that I asked. Are you a perfectionist? Are you a perfectionist in the way that you are dealing with all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit that you see in your associations with the degradations and impurity of the world around you? I hope you are. But above all things, if you're going to be holy, I hope your motive is the fear of God and the promises of God that you are completely set apart to have the kind of relationship with him that he desires and that he deserves.